name. Amen. As you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, one of the reasons Judas Iscariot remains the ultimate symbol for betrayal, where the kiss of Judas is the language of betrayal that everyone understands, wasn't just the fact that he betrayed Jesus Christ, the Son of God, true, but it was also the fact that he had this really close, intimate relationship with Jesus, which made the betrayal even worse, that he had been one of the 12. There had been a level of intimacy and trust that was reserved for that inner circle that was completely crushed in his selfish act of greed. Now, Jesus knew all along that was going to happen, but Jesus was the only one who knew all along it was going to happen. And this is some of the imagery we should have in mind as we come into one of the most controversial and difficult passages in the book of Hebrews. The strongest language of warning in the book. The description of the apostate. The theological questions raised are really important for us to answer correctly, even if we're going to understand our current context. There's lots of research that comes out every year on the number of people who no longer publicly profess to be Christian. And studies and statistics as they have they come along the last several years show us that more and more people are publicly identifying as religious nuns, not publicly identifying as Christian. And so what does that mean? Does that mean that there are Christians who are losing their salvation? Well, it's been rightly understood by guys who do research in this, like Ed Stetzer, that the number of convictional Christians, people who reorient their life around what they claim they believe, has held steady as all these studies are done year after year. But the number of people who are cultural Christians, Christians because of where they live, Christians because of their family of origin, Christians who are Christians by convenience are steadily declining, which we would say is a good thing. And a passage like this passage helps us to understand that phenomenon that's happening in our nation and in the South particularly. Is this passage describing a Christian now gone astray or is this describing a non-believer who looked like a Christian or something else? Let's actually begin at the end of chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, where the writer says, We have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Now Jesse walked us through this passage last Sunday and we saw this admonition to the church that they were still in the milk bottle and they should have progressed to maturity and eating solid food. And this came after the writer began a discussion about Jesus as our high priest in the line of Melchizedek. A train of thought he will pick up in chapter 7, but it's almost as if he realizes, wait, 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 this is some really deep water and you guys aren't ready for this. So he admonishes them, you're not ready. And so as we come into chapter 6, does he then say, okay, let's, let's drink some more milk. Let's, let's cover some more ideas that are easier for you and your immature faith to understand. Or does he do something different? Well, let's look at... Verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, let us 
leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, teaching about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. It's fascinating. You're not mature. You're still in the milk bottle. But let's keep moving forward. Let's go on to maturity. Trusting, verse 3, God will help us if he permits. And that's exactly what he's going to do. I love in volleyball coaching when we have a young player who's showing some potential, they're growing in practice, they're, they're working at home, they're developing skills, and, and I began to ask myself, are they really ready? Are they really ready to contribute in a match? Well, I don't know until I put them out there. And the lights are on, the parents and friends are watching, and then you find out if they're ready or if they're not, not ready. But there's no way to know unless you put them in that situation. Similar to this author of Hebrews, you're not ready, but we're moving forward anyway. We're going to put you out there and see what happens. And so he's going to do that through chapter 6 and then come back to the same topic in chapter 7. And the first thing we see from these three verses is, by God's grace, we move on to maturity. By God's grace, God is bringing us along to maturity as he allows this and permits this. The author lists examples of some elementary teachings about Christ. Six, in fact, in these three, uh, two verses, verses 1 and 2. It says, by God's grace, we won't keep building the foundation. We're not going to keep building the foundation. The foundation has been laid. We're now going to build on top of the foundation by his grace. And then these six qualities, repentance from dead works and faith in God, repentance and faith, elementary and essential to becoming a Christian. Dead works that he's speaking of speaks of works that lead to death. So bad things that lead to destruction and chaos in your life. We, when we come alive in Christ, we recognize we're a sinner. Our life is engaged in these dead works, these things that lead to death. And we say, I don't want to be that anymore. I see that that path that I've been going leads to death. I now want to choose life. So repentance, turning from death, dead works, faith in God, believing and trusting in God for life and salvation. Faith in God, not just uh, mental assent to truth and fact. It's more than that, as we'll see in chapter 11. It's acknowledging something is true and then building our entire life now and forever. The entire hope we have for the future is built on what we say we believe. It's reorienting our life around what we believe is true. If you are convinced that Bitcoin is the future of currency... And you've been watching videos on TikTok and you've been reading articles online. You can come and share that information with me enough for me to say, I, th I think you really believe this. But if you really want to convince me, you would show me your portfolio where you have money heavily invested in Bitcoin. And I'm like, I know you believe this now because you're heavily invested. That, that's faith. It's not just saying this thing is true. It's I believe it so much so that I'm reorienting my life around it. That's faith in God that the, the Bible, the book of Hebrews, talks about. Satan knows facts about God, but Satan doesn't love and treasure Jesus. Satan doesn't have saving faith in Jesus. Faith is belief revealed in action and adoration. Faith is belief that shows up in your actions and your adoration, who you adore. So we turn from sin, we trust, put our faith in God. These are essential and elementary to being a Christian. He also mentions 
teachings about ritual washings, which could be a reference to baptism, or it could be the ritualistic washings that are very important, very common to the Jewish lifestyle. These believers uh, originally experienced these that they, they knew so well. He mentions laying on of hands. Again, tons of references in the Old Testament to uh, different things that laying on of hands were associated with. This is probably a reference to something they knew well that they now find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Many commentators see ritual washings as a reference to baptism and laying on of hands as a reference to receiving the Holy Spirit. Again, essential, elementary, when we come alive in Christ Jesus. We're turning from our sins. We're putting our faith in God. We are publicly baptized, identifying with Jesus, and we receive the Holy Spirit. This is all elements of becoming a Christian. And then the third pair refer to the end of time and final judgment, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. So we have the beginning of the Christian life all the way to the end. These teachings were considered essential and elementary, which doesn't mean we don't enjoy them anymore if we move on to more mature things. We still enjoy them, but we don't have to spend time on them. We don't have to keep going over them. Now in school, you learn how to read, but it starts with learning the ABCs and some type of phonics, letter sounds that go together, and you put it all together, and you can read. Well, once you know how to read, you don't typically have a lesson on what are the letters of the alphabet? What are the phonetical sounds that make up language? But every time you read, you use those things, Right? It'd be silly if you had a lesson on it. You're like, I got it. I'm reading all the time. It's the same for us. We, we can enjoy these elementary aspects of our faith. But we're using them all the time in our relationship with God as we live out our faith. But we can also move on to things uh, that require more maturity. And that's exactly what the writer is doing. God permits, by his grace, we'll move on to understand more complicated things like Jesus as a priest in the line of Melchizedek. To not move forward toward maturity isn't to remain stagnant, but it's to actually regress. We're either moving forward or we're regressing. There is no standing still in this journey of faith that we have. This is what's described in the next section, the controversial strong warning passage. We see, secondly, we heed this warning and we don't fall away from Christ. So by God's grace, we move on to maturity. Secondly, we heed this warning and we don't fall away from Christ. Look at verse 4. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. This is because to their own harm they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. There's a few options to understand these verses. This is referring to a genuine Christian who walks away from the faith and loses their salvation. Or this is not describing a real situation, but a hypothetical situation. So it doesn't really matter who it's addressing because it can't really happen. Or this is referring to someone who appears to be a Christian and then walks away from that appearance of faith never to return. Now, the language here doesn't seem to be describing a hypothetical situation. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews is filled with these warning passages because the writer is desiring for these believers to persevere in the faith and not fall away back into a safer version of Christianity, uh, a type of Judaism that they were saved out of. 
the, the, whole, the writer's been saying for the first five chapters, Jesus is central to our Christianity. If you retreat from him, then you don't have Christianity. You lose him. You, you have to embrace him and all that comes with him, even if it means persecution and suffering. You can't get rid of Jesus and find safety in some lesser form of Christianity because without Jesus, it's not Christianity. That's what the first five chapters have been saying over and over and over again. And so, so stay the course and, and, and don't drift away and remain faithful to him. So this is not a hypothetical situation. This is actually a, a very strong probability or a possibility for these believers. Now, if this was teaching you could lose genuine salvation, it's just not very clear. And there's a rule in biblical interpretation, you interpret less clear passages with more clear passages. And so these descriptors that he gives in verses 4 and 5 of someone who had this type of faith, he says there in verse 4 and 5, someone who is once enlightened, tasted the heavenly gifts, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word, the powers of the coming age. If, if he is describing genuine salvation, then why didn't he just use the same descriptors he'd use as the elementary teachings of Christ in verses 1 and 2? These are completely different things that don't seem to describe genuine salvation, but something else. If he wanted to use descriptors for genuine salvation, he could have just continued to train a thought from verses 1 and 2, but he doesn't. He, he comes up with these extra descriptors. So that's odd if, if he's wanting to talk about genuine salvation. And we have several really clear passages in, in other parts of the New Testament that describe in, with clarity the eternal security of those who are genuinely saved. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Romans 30, uh, 8, 31 through 39. Romans 8, 1. John 5, 24. John 6, 44. John 10, 27 through 30. On and on we could go. I don't think this is an issue for us, but if it is, if like you struggle with the eternal security of salvation, then let's talk. Let's get together and talk through that, through the New Testament. The Bible is very clear if you have genuine salvation, you will be saved and kept forever. The question is not, is salvation secure eternally? The question is, do you have it? That's the hinge. If you have it, you're secure. But do you have it? That's where we keep being called in the New Testament to examine. That leaves us with the third option. This describes a person who appears to be a Christian and walks away never to return again. They were once enlightened, he says. They could see the truth and reality of Jesus and they intellectually grasped it. They tasted the heavenly gift, he says, bringing to mind the generation of Israelites who daily ate manna as God's provision of food in the desert and on the edge of the promised land. They even sent in 12 spies to bring back reports and fruit from the land of promise and they bring back these incredible clusters of grapes and other things that they could eat. So they actually tasted the fruit of the promised land. And when they're called to give an account, should we go in and take the land? Ten of the twelve spots said, no, they're too big. We can't conquer them. After eating bread falling from the sky for 40 years, God's continual provision from them, no, God's not big enough for this. And that's why God's so rightly and justly condemn that entire generation if that's not enough to convince them of who I really am nothing will be they had tasted the heavenly gift it also brings to mind John 6 when Jesus feeds the 5,000 
They were ready to make him a king and march on Rome. But Jesus is not that kind of Messiah. And to correct those false messianic expectations, he introduces hard teaching. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. Theological, spiritual ideas that make a lot more sense to us today. But at that point, they didn't understand that. All they understood was, this is not the Messiah we want. We want a guy who raises an army and takes out Rome. At the end of John 6, verse 66, John writes, From that moment, many, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. They too had literally tasted the heavenly gift, miraculously produced fish and bread, provision of God's grace, and walked away. They had shared the Holy, in the Holy Spirit. They had tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. The, the truly saved are permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but, but anyone can share in the Holy Spirit if God so chooses. King Saul in the Old Testament at times, the Spirit of God came on him to use him for God's purposes and then the Holy Spirit left him. But uh, the best example, of course, is back to Judas. Judas was sent out twice in pairs of disciples to do the work of Jesus with the authority of Jesus and the power of the Spirit of God. For instance, in Mark 6, he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over unclean spirits. In verse 12 and 13, so they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil, and healed them. This is someone who has experienced the power of God in and through their life. And then the writer says there in Hebrews 6, they have fallen away. This is not a temporary slip into sin or even a lackadaisical drifting away. This is deliberate, intentional rejection of Jesus and his gospel. Sometimes we make the mistake of looking at a snapshot of someone's life and making decisions about their eternal soul. Someone who's immature in the faith or someone who's struggling with sin, well, I don't know if they're really even a Christian. And if the pursuit of sin and the immaturity persists, then certainly it can lead to apostasy. But often we are far too quick to question their salvation. We make eternal determinations based on these small snippets. But even a guy like Peter struggled at times. He publicly denounced and even knowing Jesus Christ when Jesus was being tried and illegally in the middle of the night. Peter was even told by Jesus on one occasion to get behind me, Satan. He was so out of line with the will of God. Peter was later, even after he's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he's confronted by Paul in the church of Galatia because he's showing favoritism to the Jews and not the Gentiles. Peter is a great encouragement to us who still struggle at times, but Peter was never an apostate. Apostasy is deliberate permanent walking away from Jesus despite knowing all there is to know about him having even experienced him to some degree they've seen it all they've experienced all there was to experience and at a point in time they turn away and say I'm out Jesus you're not for me Judas had the opportunity to turn that rejection into a betrayal but the apostate would all do it if they had the opportunity there are currently well-known pastors who have grown adult children who, because of social media, everyone can create their own audience. 
So they're very publicly renouncing their faith, ridiculing their faith. The faith that they were taught, being highly critical of Jesus, the church, Christianity, mocking it openly and publicly, thinking of two specifically that, two of my favorite pastors and authors of the last 20 years, men still faithfully preaching the gospel, and it's, it's heartbreaking. Yet it happens. Only God knows if those kids are truly in a place where, as verse 4 says, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Only God knows. But it seems they are headed in that direction. And the passage says, to their own harm, verse 6, they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Jesus isn't literally being crucified again. Of course, he died once and for all. But they are treating him the same way he was being treated by the Jews who inherited all the Old Testament promises and prophecies. And when faced with the decision to reject or accept their Messiah, they cried out, crucify him. These apostates would have joined the crowd and cried out the same thing, crucify him. The Son of God who came to save us from our sins, no thanks. That's not the Savior I want. I would rather make my own way, enjoy life on my terms. Now the writer goes on to give an illustration of this apostasy in verse 7. For the ground that drinks the rain that often falls on it and that produces vegetation useful to those for whom it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. So this brings to mind the blessing and cursing section of Deuteronomy 28. If you obey God as you come into this land of promise, expect blessing. And if you disobey God, expect cursing, which is how the entire Old Testament played out for them. This also brings to mind the parable of the soils Jesus gives in Mark chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 13. If you remember, the only difference in that parable was the condition of the soil. There are four types of soil, three of them. The seed fell into the soil, took root, and produced vegetation, plant life. Now, one soil was so hard, the seed just bounced off. So the the seed, the word of God, as Jesus says in the parable, just on on the hard-hearted person just bounces off, doesn't even penetrate the soil Just total, absolute rejection from the word go. But the second soil over time is shallow. And Jesus says as the sun heats up, the sun identified as persecution, the roots aren't deep enough and the plant material withers in the scorching sun. So this is a person who appears to have received the word of God. Life has come forward. They appear to have this life. But as soon as ridicule and rejection and the scorn of whoever's around them heats up, I'm out. This is not for me. I'd rather retreat to a safe place. The third soil does the same. But this soil is weedy. And Jesus identifies the weeds as the cares and concerns of this world. And over time, it chokes out the life of the plant and it too dies. Only one soil is fertile and not just plant material springs up but also fruit 30 60 100 fold which we'll see later in chapter uh, verses 9 through 12 both of these in verse 8 both the second and the third soil in verse 8 are illustrations of someone who appears to be a christian for a time who have experienced what is described in verses 4 and 5 but 
At some point, they fall away, not from genuine salvation, but from getting close to salvation. Like Judas, who for three years publicly identified as one of Jesus' closest disciples, he saw it all, even experienced the power of Jesus in him and through him, but walked away. Now remember, none of the 12 knew this about Judas. They knew it later, like John would write all these little clues in his gospel account, but that was, that was written 40, 50 years later. In, in the, the moment, they didn't know this. On the night of Jesus' arrest at the meal, they shared, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And what was their response? Everybody points at Judas? No. They're all like, I hope it's not me. John 13 even writes that Jesus eventually looks at Judas and says, what you need to do, go do it quickly. And when he got up and left, all the other disciples were like, well, what's he going to do? He gets run another errand. He must be special. They didn't know. They didn't know until Jesus is in the garden and the soldiers come, led by Judas, and Judas plants a kiss on Jesus' cheek to identify him so the soldiers know who to arrest. This is the purpose of these warning passages in Hebrews throughout the New Testament. It's for us to be like the other disciples. I hope it's not me. I hope this is not true of me. I hope I'm going to stay faithful to the end. They are to help us never assume or take for granted God's grace at work in our lives, but to help us check ourselves, check our hearts constantly, to help us persevere. Yes, we should live life with assurance. So there's all kinds of bad places we can go with this. Like we, we shouldn't live just thinking we can lose our salvation with any random thought that pops in our head or any particular sin that we commit. Oh my gosh, do I need to get saved again? No, no, no. First John, entire book written so that we would have assurance, but that assurance in First John is based upon the fruits of obedience. It's not based on past experiences. Well, I was baptized and I joined the church and I did these things in the past, but where are you today? Where are the affections of your heart today? Where are the fruits of your life, the fruits of repentance, the fruits of obedience today? Where's your affection today? The genuine believer will respond to these questions with humble inspection of their heart and life and repentance when repentance is necessary. The apostate, the potential apostate, will respond to these warning passages with hard-heartedness and self-justification or hiding. I don't want to be examined. Let me just hide over here. We can and should live with assurance and a humble confidence that we are God's, that we are his kids, that we are indwelt by the Spirit of God and, by, and we're God's people by his grace. But we never cross the line into arrogance. We never cross the line into assuming our salvation. Someone would come up to you and ask you, are you a Christian? It's not, it's never, of course I am. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done? I'm, I'm a pastor. I mean, why would you even ask me that? Like, all, you know, all this defensiveness and self-justification coming out. That's, that's a bad indication of our hearts not being where they need to be. Are you, are you a Christian? By God's grace. Only by his grace. Always by his grace. I am today. And I hope and pray by God's grace I will be tomorrow. And I hope and pray by God's grace I will be when I, when I, when I breathe my final breath. Hope in God's, by God's grace, he sustains me to the end. 
but I never assume it. I never just arrogantly claim it. He's saved me. He is saving me. He is keeping me. He is amazing, not me, not you. He's the amazing one. We, we live in a culture with deep and old roots in Christianity and the church. The vast majority of the people in our city claim to be Christian, and some of that is genuine. A lot, much, too much. How about that? Too much of it is just religion. Too much of it is over-spiritualized emotional experiences. It's not hearts that have come alive in Christ Jesus and lives that have been reoriented to follow Jesus. And as we humbly learn how to examine our salvation and by his grace see how real it is, we can be used by God to help our culture do the same. We have people in our life who are brazenly, openly, unabashedly chasing sin with no remorse and no repentance while saying, I'm a Christian. We love them enough to risk the relationship. Are you sure? What are you basing that on? With the hope that these false assurances that are in our culture would be exposed and true repentance would happen and life in Christ would happen. So as, as I, always, I always pray when I get to, to preach a passage like this that we, we do feel the weight of this warning, this examination and that if our hearts and minds are defensive, if, maybe if you're here and you're playing around with secret sin and you don't want to deal honestly with this, that you just want to justify yourself because whatever. That we would heed this warning and the Spirit of God would help us to see, is our faith genuine? Is it real? And if your salvation and life in Christ is genuine, then I'm praying right now, Holy Spirit of God, overwhelm us with peace and joy and assurance. We are His and He is ours. Do that. We don't need any more church services where false and fake guilt is heaped on people just to get decisions. If you're His, Spirit of God, confirm that. Bear witness with, with us this morning. But if not, if you're not his, if you're not feeling that assurance and that peace, maybe it's because you are living this secret, hidden, sinful life and there just needs to be repentance and, and a return to Jesus or, or maybe you've never truly come alive in him and, and you need today to be the day of your salvation. So before it's too late, because as verse 4 says, there is a day when it is too late. This, this blows our mind because we love to talk about God's grace and God's mercy. He lavishes it on us. We say this kind of stuff all the time. He lavishes love on us. But the same God says, verse 4, for it is impossible to renew this person to repentance. There can come a day for someone when it, it, it's too late it can't happen and none of us know when that day is only the Lord knows but it can 
And so our call is always repent of your sin and trust in Jesus. If you can live a lifestyle of repentance and faith in Jesus, you can rest assured you are his. But if it's only surface and it's not heart change and heart affection, then be warned today. For some, maybe there's just turmoil this morning in your heart and your mind and you, like you really need to talk to somebody. Look around the room. This room is filled with people who would love to talk to you about this. Love to go eat lunch with you, meet up for coffee this week, a meal, whatever it takes for you to process the true condition and nature of your heart. I've had many conversations with people over the years to help them discern the genuineness of salvation. And, and by and large, all the examples I could think of, by and large, if someone's coming to me worried and concerned about the genuineness of salvation, by and large, it's been genuine. Because you're asking, you're wanting to know. I probably haven't had the conversations with the people who have fallen away. So if this is a warning passage causing you anxiety, then see this as a gift of his grace. He's surrounding you with people this morning who love to walk with you through that struggle toward repentance and have a deeper life and deeper affection for Jesus. And, and if this is bouncing off your heart this morning, God have mercy. God have mercy on you before it's too late. The writer of this letter, by the way, what do you think he thought about those he was writing this to? Well, as you can see in this last section, uh, he had confidence in the genuineness of their faith. Verse 9, even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we are confident of things that are better and that pertain to salvation. For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. Now we deserve each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end so that you won't become lazy but will be imitators of those who, inherited, who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. The writer does a few things that are very pastoral. First, notice the pronoun changes in this entire section. In the opening section, it's we and us, verses 1 through 3. Let us leave the elementary teachings. We will do this if God permits. When he goes into the hard teaching of verses 4 through uh, 7, verses 4 through 6 rather, he switches the pronouns to the third person. Those, theirs, and they. This is true of someone. I'm not talking about we and us. I'm not talking about you and your. It's true of them and they. And then coming into this section, he switches back to we and us and you and your. Very intimate very personal. This letter was written to encourage these Hebrew Christians to persevere, and part of that are these warning passages, but this writer has great confidence that they will, and he talks to them in a way that reveals that this is true. Now, we can learn much about encouragement from this and how we talk to our kids and how we talk to brothers and sisters in faith. We can admonish one another in a way that just beats people down and discourages them, makes them want to quit. Or we can admonish one another in a way that speaks life and builds them up. We all need that admonishment from time to time. Come on, brother. Come on, sister. But let's do it in a way that gives life and grace and encouragement. Like, I don't believe the worst possible outcome of this situation that you're in is going to happen. God has not ordained for you to be in this situation to destroy your faith. But to grow your faith and help you to see that this is real. God does not want to destroy your walk with him. God does not desire to destroy your marriage. God does not desire to destroy your future. 
So what is hard right now that you're walking through, what testing that you're experiencing, what temptations that you're constantly having to fight off, he's ordained to grow you. And you're going to get there by his grace. You're going to get there. Let's go. Let, let me help you. Let's help each other. Let's coach each other up. Let's build each other up. And then secondly, the, the change in pronouns, but notice also how he addresses them. Verse uh, 9, dearly loved friends. It's the only time in the letter he uses that language. And it comes right after the hardest language, the hardest warning. This is a brother who loves his people, loves them dearly. He is confident they are not apostates, even though some maybe who hear this letter or some that they are aware of that have left their church Certainly they have examples from Israel, the nation of Israel and, and Jesus' disciples. He is confident that this isn't true of them because of the fruit of their life. And you can make the list of the fruits of genuine salvation. So he mentions work there in verse 7. I'm sorry, verse uh, uh, 10. He will not forget your work. Good works seen and noticed and not forgotten by God. He knows. He knows. He sees all the things that nobody else sees. All the things that, you know, maybe we do and we're tempted. Maybe I should post about that, you know. Hashtag serving Jesus. Just doing my thing. I don't know. When we're tempted to do that, that, that kind of thing, to, to promote self or to say, look at all the, the labor I'm doing for others. It's okay. Your Father in heaven knows. He sees all the hidden prayers that you pray for your brothers and sisters. He sees all the, the small acts of love that maybe you and that person that you love are the only two that know about it, but, but he knows. He doesn't forget any good thing, all the hidden acts of love, good works done, not in the spotlight, not posted on social media. They are recorded by heaven. He sees our good works. He sees you loving that baby in the middle of the night when your husband won't wake up because he sleeps so hard. Sorry. That's how we sleep, I guess. He sees you loving whoever you're loving and no one else sees you loving them. He also sees, secondly, love demonstrated by serving the saints. What a great way to have confidence in the genuineness of someone's salvation there in verse 10. They love by serving others. John 13, I give you a new command, love one another, so I loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples. We'll, we'll see this later in Hebrews 10. Sometimes, he says, you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times, you were companions of those who were treated that way. So it wasn't happening to you but you were joining in the mistreatment and the taunts and afflictions they were experiencing. Verse 34, for you sympathized with the prisoners, you accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Yay, my possessions are being confiscated. Whoopee, who's, who's saying that? These radical Christians are crazy because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. My brothers and sisters are are hurting and suffering because they're publicly identifying with Christ. They're having possessions taken away. They're, they're going to prison. They're losing. They're having to sell things, things being put on the market to pay for their fines or whatever they're experiencing. And, and I'm joining with them in that. I'm not retreating from them. I'm loving them by joining them with that. And I'm doing it with joy. Incredible love. Incredible love. Weeping with those who weep. Suffering together. God, help us never become cold and distant from those who suffer. Let, let empathy and sympathy flow freely among this body of believers. 
And then thirdly, diligence and endurance, another obvious fruit of genuine salvation. You finish the race. John talks about in 1 John 2, you know, they went out from us because they are not of us. For if they would have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out to show that they were not truly of us. You endure. You persevere. There is much to be celebrated about just being where you are, doing what you're doing, and never quitting. Just never stopping. You don't have to be in the spotlight. You don't have to get the praise and acclamation of all the people that, that whatever, they're important. You're just grinding it out week by week, month by month, year by year, staying constant, staying steady, enduring to the end. The American church puts so much pressure on ourselves for the appearance of success, to be a certain size, to look a certain way, to have a certain recognition, to have a, have a platform. How about we just focus on loving Jesus, loving each other, spreading his gospel, and just never quitting. And whatever that looks like for us, that's what it looks like. But we're not worried about all that. We're just worried about being faithful and being obedient to what he's called us to do and just never, ever stopping. By God's grace, as he permits, we're not going anywhere. We're going to remain diligent. We're going to, to, to have this, live with this ongoing full assurance of our hope until the end, and no one and nothing will take away our hope. We're not going to become lazy, but we'll be like those we'll read about in Hebrews 11, inheriting all the promises he has for us through faith and perseverance. The section opened in, 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 in chapter 5, verse 11, that they had become too lazy to understand, and now he closes this this exhortation to not become lazy. It's the only time in the New Testament this word translated as lazy is used. Do you ever think about that word lazy? Like we justify our laziness sometimes. We've worked hard. We deserve some time to be lazy. But, but understand that laziness is not rest. Laziness is apathy. It's not caring. It's not being diligent. Rest is resting in Jesus and still caring about what Jesus cares about, cares about while we're resting. You may be taking a break from your labors, which we should do. Work six days, rest one. But laziness is putting our minds and hearts on cruise control and letting our flesh take over. It leads to disengaging our mind and heart and spirit. It leads to flesh indulgence and sin, and it can lead to apostasy, where you just eventually quit. I quit caring, I quit striving. And you ultimately reveal you were never in to begin with. So God, help us to know the difference between laziness and rest. Help us not justify sin under the guise of laziness and call it rest. There's never a time in which Jesus doesn't care how you spend your time, how you engage your mind and heart, where you set your affections. And so if rest leads you to indulgence and laziness and sin, then I would encourage you to reexamine your definition of rest. So let's not be lazy. Let's press on to maturity. Not like those who will ultimately reject Jesus despite being close enough to know he's real, but will continue to the end with good works, love, serving each other, and persevering. The last book of the Chronicles of Narnia has a glaring omission. Where is Susan? If Peter and Edmund and Lucy and Eustace, but where is Susan? And if you remember the story, Peter is asked. And Peter sadly says, my sister Susan is no longer a friend of Narnia. 
And Eustace adds, yes, and whenever you try and talk to her about Narnia, she says, what wonderful memories you have of those funny games we played as kids. You have to believe C.S. Lewis knew some Susans who matured beyond Jesus and Christianity, chalking up our, our faith to the funny games of the childish and the unenlightened. But by God's grace, we will endure with our childlike faith and continue to live in the wonder and amazement and worship of a holy God who would see fit to save us, a bunch of wretched sinners. This is why we continue to sing. This is why we continue to gather. This is why we continue to serve. This is why we continue to press the good news of the gospel forward in our city and beyond because we can't get over him. He continues to captivate us. He continues to be the treasure of our life. He continues to draw us back to him. He continues to chase us down when we want to run away. What more could we say? What more? If I had 10,000 lives, I'd love to give 10,000 lives in devotion to this good, kind king. Jesus, thank you so much for being this savior, this friend, this shepherd, the one who loves us with unspeakable, unimaginable great love. So much love that you willingly gave your life so that we could live. God, I pray that your peace and your joy and your hope would just fill every heart of your people that are in this room or that are listening to this or watching this later on. That in the deepest part of our being, we would have full affirmation. We are yours and you are ours. and We're your people. And let's keep moving forward with diligence and persistence. And Father, I pray if there's anyone in danger of apostasy this morning, walking away from you because of whatever reason, the cares and concerns of this world, choking out the life of Jesus that was once there, persecution, ridicule, scorn. God, I pray today that they would see you again as beautiful and you would call them to repentance and faith in Jesus. Do this because you love them so much. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.